It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who do not use horse dewormer as a means of preventing infectious diseases. Listen, if you're listening to this and you've got horse dewormer in your hand, I want you to put that horse dewormer down. All right. I want you what? to get on Twitter and read the FDA message. It says you're not a horse. Just stop it. Step away from the horse dewormer. Go talk to a real doctor. What if they oh, have on. a wormy horse, though? Okay. If you have a, let me make an exception. Let me make a caveat. Okay. <laughs> if you have a wormy horse, then I don't know whether you should put down the horse dewormer. Just make sure you're doing it under the guidance of an expert in horses and worms. That sounds fair. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra uh, from Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we are here today to talk with Dr. Paul Offit about all the COVID-19 updates we need, FDA approval, Delta, 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 Mm -hmm. three doses, two doses, 15 doses, all of those things we're going to cover (laughs) as well as, whoa, sorry, we're on Zoom and Nathan is like. Yeah, I needed to pull up my around the web. Sorry. Okay. So I had to bring it down from the shelf to 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 the desk. Totally fine. Anyhow, we're going to be talking about all that great stuff. I am going to go ahead with my around the web so that Nathan can figure out his shelving situation. (laughs) Mine is super simple. Yeah. (laughs) Just all you need is an Allen wrench. Um, (laughs) Super simple around the web. Uh, I want everyone to go to Twitter and look at the hashtag why I vax and glory at the number of positive stories about why people are vaccinating and all this hopeful, optimistic, wonderful stuff having to do with vaccines and just be in that space for a while because it's been going on for about two weeks now and it's all positive. And so take some time. It's like going on a vacation. It's like spa day for pro-vaxxers. It'll be great. Go do it. That's my around the web. Bathe in those pro-vaccine vibes. That's right. Let that let that flow through you. Your pro vaccine beach hair, mm-hmm. beach read, everything's great. And you will become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I would like to bring up one particular uh, author out there who is doing some really good work. Uh, his name is Dr. Jonathan Howard. He is a neurologist at Bellevue in New York. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot with Dr. Offit here about COVID in kids. We're going to talk about those risks. Uh, we're going to talk about what, what the facts are. But there's a lot of not just misinformation, but framing of information to really minimize the risk of COVID in kids. And I think nobody is kind of breaking that down better than Dr. Howard is. And in particular, there are some kind of people on Twitter and on the internet with some measure of expertise that are minimizing the risk to kids. And Dr. Howard has a series of great articles. He's had great articles throughout the uh, 
throughout the pandemic. But one in particular is called Cognitive Illusions and How Not to Write About COVID-19 in Children and looks really nicely at how uh, some people will set up facts to make it look like, even though the facts are true, that it means that something is not a big of a, as big of a problem as it is because they're comparing it to other problems or whatnot, making straw men, et cetera. And so this article is very good at that. This is on the Science-Based Medicine website. He also has some other ones more recently that, that break down further or look even more into it, looking at uh, some doctors or experts that are out there that may not themselves be totally anti-vaccine, but are sure needing to be fact-checked as if they were when it comes to uh, COVID vaccine and COVID mitigation strategies and stuff like that. So take a look at those from Dr. Howard on the sciencebasedmedicine.org website. Fantastic. I'll put those in the show notes, but mm -hmm. I do want to just sort of say that it's been really disappointing to see some of these doctors come out so boldly mm -hmm. in ways that are so dangerous, especially for kids. Um, I don't, I don't know what they're thinking. Yeah, I don't either. And it's creating a lot of fodder for politicians to be able to hide behind to not do mitigation uh, efforts for kids. And gosh, I mean, I'm not saying that that's coming from my particular state or anything, but. Uh, Ovid uh, Kim? The, <laughs> hey, now we are, you know, we're a very uh, apolitical podcast here. I'm not going to name any names, but. The, uh, the, the, it is extremely concerning because really we are looking at, and we'll talk about this with Dr. Offit, but we're looking at a situation now where we have a Delta variant that is two or three times higher in terms of its transmissibility. Uh, we're going to talk about the data in terms of how dangerous it is and how it might be more dangerous of a, of a variant as well. And we're going into the school year with fewer tools, like in some states, uh, hands tied as far as what school districts can do to actually protect kids from these, uh, from this disease. And so it's extremely important to be talking about this with, and, and to be honest about it, yes. Do we have a lower risk to kids and adults? Absolutely. Is this the kind of risk that we would ordinarily consider negligible? Absolutely not. There's a lot of risk to kids. So take a look at those articles because it really does go through that pretty well. Fantastic. You know what? We are going to go ahead and start our interview with Dr. Offit right after this break. We are now joined by Dr. Paul Offit, who is a vaccine extraordinaire expert um, in charge of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospitals of Philadelphia and has a CV about five miles long. So I'm definitely not going to read it. But also, if you listen to this podcast, you probably know who Paul Offit is. So welcome, Paul. It's so nice to talk to you today. Thank you. I think it would just be easier to say something like, for all of you fans of professional roller derby, this man needs no introduction. You know, I think <laughs> Good point. There we go. All right. Um, well, we asked Dr. Offit here today to have a discussion about all of the updates concerning COVID-19 and the vaccines. So I would like to start with Delta, Delta, Delta. Um, <laughs> Delta is concerning a lot of folks. 
much of the country has already sent their children back to school. I know I've been watching with horror uh, how Iowa has been sending their children back to school without masks, without any contact tracing, without telling parents, like basically with fewer mitigation strategies than they have for head lice. Yes. And so what is the scoop about Delta for real? Should we be worried about our children? Is it, is it really as bad as everyone says it is? Right. Well, it's, it's clearly more transmissible. Uh, There's no question about that. I mean, the first variant, the one that came out of China, the D614G variant was eventually replaced by the alpha variant because the alpha variant was more transmissible, which was basically replaced by the Delta variant because the Delta variant was clearly more transmissible. Um, There's a question about whether or not it's more virulent. Uh, the, The sense is that it is. There's three studies that the CDC recently presented at an ACIP meeting saying that it was more virulent, meaning more likely to cause severe disease, that the hospitalization rate could be as high as 2%, whereas previously for children it was more like 0.5%. So so it's it's likely to be more virulent. What worries me about this is just what you said. You know, we have this confluence of dangerous events. One is that you have a virus which is clearly more transmissible. Two, you're heading into fall and winter where this virus is going to be more easily transmitted during uh, climates that are cooler and drier. And three, you have an unvaccinated population in children less than 12 and an undervaccinated population in children between 12 and 17. That's a bad combination. I mean, last year we were better at this. And in many ways, we were better last year because we didn't have a vaccine. So we were much better about masking and and, uh, physically distancing because we knew that was the only um, weapon we had in the fight against this virus. Now, because we have the, the weapon of vaccination, somehow it seems to be okay as a concept. You know, like you don't actually have to get the vaccine. Just the fact that the, the vaccine is out there makes everybody feel better. Um, and that's not good. It's, I had a call from a woman the other day from Florida who said, look, my child is nine years old. Um, he's going to be going to elementary school. Um, he's, he, he, I'll, I'll put a mask on him, but there is no mask mandate. And I know many children aren't gonna be wearing masks and there's no vaccine uh, mandate for teachers. And so I'm worried. I mean, what do I do? I, I don't know the answer to that question other than hope for the best or move to Vermont. I, you know, I, I just don't see what the choices were. Yeah, I, I'm getting that question like every day in Iowa. That's the, one of the number one questions that I, that I talk to families about. Um, and tell us a little bit about those risks to kids, because the number one thing that you hear is that it's less dangerous or, you know, some people try to make it sound like it's not dangerous to kids, but we have the risk not only of death, but risks of other things. Can you tell us about why we're concerned about Sure. I was just, I was actually on service last week. So, you know, we rounded on COVID patients as well as other patients. And they're, they're like, you know, like other children's hospitals, we're seeing more patients than we would have expected, uh, sort of in, consistent with the national average. Um, you know, the mantra when the virus first came into this country and started killing people in February last year, we was, you know, that this is a, a virus that's going to kill older people. And that's true. I mean, 93% of the deaths were in people over 55. 
And the children, when they are infected, are infected less frequently and less severely, which is generally true. The problem is that doesn't mean that they're not infected or that they're not infected severely. You know, you have millions of children who've been infected. You've had tens of thousands who've been hospitalized. You've had at least 400 who've been killed. Plus, plus there is, and it, it's varies between one in a thousand to one in 3,000 children who are infected will have this multi-system inflammatory disease, which is pretty frightening to see. You know, these kids generally are asymptomatic. Um, usually between six and 14 years of age, um, just picked up serendipitously as being uh, um, shedding virus or PCR positive because they were in contact with a friend or family member who was infected. And then, then, then a month later, they come back, they're not shedding virus anymore. They're antibody positive and they have high fever, lung involvement, liver involvement, kidney involvement, heart involvement. You walk in the room, you see the brain fog, it's characteristic. And a subset of those children are going to go on to become long haulers. I mean, this, this virus, when, when this virus first came out of China, it was billed as a winter respiratory virus like influenza, that like influenza could cause severe and occasionally fatal illness. That was a misrepresentation of this virus. This virus is far worse than that. It causes you to make an immune response to your own blood vessels, causing vasculitis. Therefore, because every organ system in your body has a blood supply, every organ system is at risk. It's a frightening virus. And so I saw that study out of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that indicated that regardless of symptom severity, when kids got COVID, correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but that they had biomarkers for vascular damage of some kind. What, when we talk about these kids that have either long COVID or Miss C, what are we worried about in terms of long-term sequelae from that or permanent sequelae from that? Right. I mean, if you're, if you're disrupting blood supply for any critical period of time to a major organ, um, you worry that there could be long-term permanent harm. I, I think we're going to only learn about this three years, five years, 10 years from now. But um, I think the lesson that we should learn right now is that this is a preventable illness. And there's no reason, there is no good reason not to get a vaccine, just a lot of bad reasons. So I kind of want to riff off of that a little bit, because I know as a former teacher, when I think about children right now, we're obviously really all concerned about test scores, for example, coming out of last year's school year, where it shows a marked drop in performance on tests, which isn't usually, usually I don't put a lot of stock in tests, but when you see a big drop like that, you know that there were just a lot of kids who weren't learning. On the flip side, one of the things I'm concerned about is sending kids sort of into the fire to, to get sick. Um, what will that do to their learning? Not just the missed school time, but are we setting kids up for learning and behavioral problems the way that we did when we put lead in drinking water? Yeah, I mean, it's no one would disagree that on-site learning is better than distance learning. There's so many advantages to being on site, including socialization. I mean, you see all the negative consequences that children have had to have suffered through this pandemic, like an increase in teen suicide. I know that for, at least in Philadelphia, for many kids, um, when they go to school, it's the only decent meal they get during the day. I mean, last year, the instance of child abuse in, in Philadelphia went to zero. It's not because it actually went to zero. It's just because child abuse is typically picked up in the school and it wasn't being picked up. So there's so many good reasons to be able to send children back to school. 
that you'd think we would be a little more careful about it, like we were last year. I mean, most of the Philadelphia public schools were closed last year, but the private schools were open carefully, making sure that, you know, the children were physically distanced, that they wore masks, you know, that the teachers wore masks, that people sat farther apart in the cafeteria, because we knew how important on-site learning was, and we cared about it. Um, this year, it's again, it's just... Uh, so odd to see us on the one hand know that that on-site learning is important but do so little to try and protect it you know that over the next few months there are going to be outbreaks in schools you know that there's going to be quarantining you know that there's probably going to be certain some schools that'll go back to virtual learning because we just weren't careful right and i just i just want to underline again that we care more about head lice in schools right now than we do about the spread of covid in in some places um, I also want to turn to some of the summer activities going on. I just saw in news headlines that post Sturgis, uh, COVID rates quintupled in South Dakota, which was not even a little bit shocking. I know a lot of the folks who attend Sturgis don't even wear helmets when riding their bikes. And so, um, I'm not surprised that probably the majority of them were not vaccinated. Um, but then, you know, we also have other events happening right now, like the Minnesota State Fair. And I don't think it's a secret, but those of us who live north of the Mason-Dixon line are headed into uh, non-warm weather, we'll say that way, so, uh, a heat-deprived season, and we'll all be heading indoors. And so, you know, top of my mind is our 2020 post Sturgis surge, boy, say that five times real fast. Um, we didn't have a state fair, but we certainly saw a surge even as far as Minnesota and Wisconsin after Sturgis motorcycle get together. And it was, I believe, you know, about seven times smaller last year. So how much hurt on the hurt scale of like none to like really, really terrible. How much hurt are we headed into going into things like Thanksgiving and Halloween and, you know, winter holidays? Right. Uh, um, well, it feels like it's going to be a world of hurt, as they say. But what's amazing to me is if you look at the numbers now in terms of, of um, cases and hospitalizations and deaths, it's worse than it was last year. I mean, in terms of end of August of last year, which is remarkable. I mean, last year we had a fully susceptible population and no vaccine. This year, more than 50% of people are vaccinated. And also there's probably, um, I know that if you look on sort of CNN or MSNBC, it says 35 or 36 million people that have been infected, but that's just people who've been tested and found to be infected. Assume from these antibody surveillance studies that that number's probably off by at least a factor of three. There's probably been 100 million people at least who've been naturally infected, which will provide some evidence for some protection against serious disease, no doubt about it. I mean, both natural infection and immunization protect. So, so now those aren't two separate groups. Obviously, there's a lot of people who've been naturally infected and vaccinated and vice versa, but we're probably at about a 70% population immunity level, I would imagine. And nonetheless, um, you, you see these outbreaks, but that said, it's because it's not like 70% across the country. I mean, some places is probably closer to 90%, other places it's, it's probably closer to 30 or 40%. And I, I think in the end, we're going to need to vaccinate about another 60 million people before we get on top of this. Uh, hopefully, um, they, those 60 million won't become immune because they've 
um, naturally infected, but rather have chosen vaccine. But see, that's that's where the fight is now. I think is 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 what do you do when when you know a solid twenty five to thirty percent of the population says no thanks, I don't I don't want a vaccine, I'm not interested. What do you do? And I think that's where the fight is over the next six months, which is going to be at the level of mandates. So regarding that fight and the potential for mandates, we now have at least we have one vaccine that's fully FDA approved. Uh, and so can you tell us a little bit about what the difference is between the emergency use authorization and the FDA approval? And do you think there's a, a, a proportion of Americans that this is going to sway them into getting the vaccine or not? Well, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, when they interviewed people who had not yet been vaccinated, three of 10 said that they were just waiting for full approval. Not so sure I believe that. I think well, that's 30% roughly of the population that's unvaccinated. So I guess 30 million people are now going to be rushing out to get a vaccine. I don't think that's going to work out that way. I think this was just an excuse and that absent that excuse, they'll have another excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, th- I think that um, it's, I wish we had a different term than emergency use authorization for the vaccines, because when you hear emergency use, technically all emergency use authorization means is that a company has the legal right to distribute an investigational new drug or vaccine. That, that's what all that means. But this, this, the vaccines are not that. I mean, these vaccines have been tested in, in clinical trials, you know, 30,000 for Moderna, 44,000 for Pfizer, 40,000 for Johnson Johnson. That's the size of any typical pediatric or adult vaccine trial. Um, and the safety follow-up, which is two months after the last dose, is also typical of any uh, pediatric or adult vaccine. The only real difference functionally between these products and typical vaccines is you have more than three months of follow-up for efficacy. I mean, so so when we, in December, when the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee recommended uh, approval for those vaccines, you could say that they were highly effective for three months. On the other hand, you're not going to do one-year, two-year, three-year studies to see how long they're effective in the midst of a pandemic. You're going to assume that it's going to be good for a while, which has certainly been true. Certainly protection against severe diseases held up. Um, so, so I think functionally for the, the consumer, um, there is no real difference. And, and um, in terms of mandates, you can also mandate under EUA, as a number of places have already done. I th- in, in terms of technically what the difference is, just so you know, is that when um, the FDA licenses a product, they don't just license the product. They also license the process and they license the manufacturing site. And that is not a small task. What they have to do is they have to then validate every protocol for every step of the manufacturing process. And that takes typically about 10 months. You can get an expedited review in six months. This was done in about four months, which is faster than ever before. I know everybody was understood, didn't understand why it took so long. The FDA was working around the clock to get that done. And we'll see whether it makes any difference. It seems to have, does seem to have made a difference in terms of mandates. There were a number yeah, that's of interesting. I, I was interested in that because I, I do see those those headlines like we're getting all hands on deck. And to me, that means like what? You're just reading the, the studies faster. What does that mean? But to think about the actual person power that it takes to to actually look at processes and facilities and stuff like that. That's really interesting to see that you can really expedite that by recruiting more people uh, and using more more resources and money to make that faster not not quality sacrifice but uh just how much resources you divert to it and not just reading faster (laughs) so we're at full fda approval for one mrna vaccine i know 
the question I get constantly from everybody now, even the people who used to think that my job working in vaccines was weird and maybe they didn't want to talk to me. Now they're all about talking to me and they want to know when their nine, 10, 11 year olds, even their five and six year olds can get a vaccine. So what's going on with getting vaccines for our children? Um, it's hard to know. I mean, I'll take a guess as everyone's taking a guess. It, 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 it seems like it's going to be best case scenario end of this year early next year so it's going to be during the winter um obviously you'd like to have it now to be able to protect protect our children before they go back to school or some have already started to go back to school um I, that's the best guess right now i don't even think the uh the application has been submitted yet by the company so that hasn't happened yet yeah, yeah right. my I... understanding is pfizer's submitting in september um but I, I feel like this up in the air question is, will an emergency youth author, use authorization happen soon after that? Or is there going to be a request for more data before even the EUA is done? And yeah, I guess we have the same <laughs> shrug. <laughs> for those listening at home, both Paul and Nathan shrugged. Yeah. <laughs> same feeling, same energy. So the... Other topic we have going on is this sort of third dose, and it's sort of two topics. So let's take the first one, which is people who are immunocompromised receiving a third dose. And I thought that this was really well explained by Chris Arisman at the Minnesota Department of Health, which is this is not a booster dose. This is a dose trying to catch more people who may not have mounted a response to the first two doses they received. Does that sound accurate to you? And do you think that that third dose is needed for you know folks on immunosuppressants or otherwise immunocompromised? Yes, no, I think that's exactly the right way to say it, that for, for some, it's, a, it's considered a three-dose vaccine. Um, so what the FDA did was they, they then approved the use of a third dose for people who are uh, have solid organ transplants or the, the immuno, immune suppression equivalent of it that is received by a solid organ transplant. And then the CDC then came back and listed about six or seven um, groups for whom this vaccine would be recommended as a third dose. I would say in general, they're, they're, we're just starting to generate data on this. Um, but if you, if you haven't had an immune, res immune response at all to the first two doses, it's unlikely you're going to have a response to the third dose. If you've had somewhat of an immune response, then there's about a 25 to 50% chance that you would have an increased immune response with that third dose. But it sort of underlines one important point, which is there is 2.7% of people in this country are immune compromised, according to those criteria. That's 9 million people. Those people depend on those around them to protect them because they may not be able to be successfully immunized. And do we have a responsibility to those people? Do we have a responsibility to our immune compromised neighbor? Yes, we do. All the more reason to be vaccinated. So when I talk to families or people, adults, that uh, are not wanting to get the vaccine, one of the most common things that come up is that they already had COVID. Now, my understanding is that, you know, I know that it's recommended to get vaccinated even if you've had COVID. I don't know how much energy it is worth putting into trying to talk to somebody who's had COVID. What is the reality in terms of breakthrough infections and then the benefit of the vaccine in people who have already had COVID over the last year or so? 
Right. So there was a publication in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. It was published. Uh, the, the publication date is August 13th, 2021. If you look on page 1081 of this, what you'll see is you'll see a study that was done in Kentucky looking at people who were naturally infected and then vaccinated or naturally infected and not vaccinated. And what you see is there's about a two and a half fold increased risk of getting COVID if you were were essentially um, vaccinated after being naturally infected as compared to not vaccinated. So there, there are now clear data showing that there is a benefit to vaccinating people who have, have already been naturally infected, which makes sense because it serves as essentially a, a booster response. Um, so the data are clear. Yeah. Do we have a good sense of how often breakthrough infections happen in people that contracted the illness? I think that's that's going to be a function of time. Here's what you would expect from this vaccine. You would expect that over time, I mean, when, when they, we looked at the original data, right, they were remarkable, 95% protection against all manner of illness, meaning mild, moderate, severe disease. Those initial studies didn't look at protection against asymptomatic shedding, but 95% protection and in people over 65 and in people with a variety of comorbidities. But that was over a three-month period. As you move along with this kind of vaccine, what you would expect is that there would be a waning in um, in antibody uh, titers and also concomitant with that. And because of that, you would see also an erosion, if you will, in protection against asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection. That's all what you would expect. So, um, but you would expect that protection against serious illness over time would still be good. And, and um, that certainly is true up till about now. We're, we're about six months into this vaccine and the data that have been, pre- have been presented have been consistent with it. That always makes me think of a question that I'm, I'm always unsure of exactly how to phrase it. But basically, if we have waning immunity against mild disease or asymptomatic disease, it brings to mind our, you know, 12 to 17 year olds um, who've been vaccinated. And if they then have a breakthrough infection that's mild, are they at reduced risk for that Miss C complication? Or are we just not sure at this time? You, you would think so. Also, I do think that the, the one of the biggest communication errors we have had in trying to get people to understand what this vaccine can and can't do is using the term breakthrough infection to describe a mild or asymptomatic infection. That is not a breakthrough. That's exactly what you would expect. Most vaccines, that's what you would expect. I mean, the rotavirus vaccine that, you know, that uh, I was, you know, was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital Philadelphia to create. And our vaccine doesn't really protect against asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. That's okay. And the goal was to try and keep children out of the hospital, you know, out of the doctor's office and, and from dying. And, and the vaccine does do that. So, so I think those aren't breakthrough. A breakthrough infection to me is someone who, despite being fully vaccinated, nonetheless is hospitalized with the virus. And right now we're, we're, we're seeing that that's really happening at a very, very low level. And I think the number to look at is not to say, okay, whatever, 97% of people who are hospitalized are unvaccinated, because what's going to happen over time is more and more people are vaccinated, that that number is going to decrease, and you're going to see more people who are vaccinated that are hospitalized. I mean, what you want, and this sounds, if you on the surface, crazy, a crazy thing to say, what you want is 100% of people who are hospitalized have been vaccinated, because that means you've vaccinated 100% of people. Um, 
I mean, that outbreak in Provincetown, you know, where you had had, uh, you know, thousands of men getting together in, uh, you know, to celebrate July 4th in, in eastern Massachusetts, and and 79% of them were vaccinated. And there was an outbreak. So there were people who, who got COVID, there were 346 who had, despite previous vaccination, had COVID, but only four were hospitalized. So 1.2% were hospitalized. That's the number to look at. Percentage of people who, who are fully vaccinated that are hospitalized. And right now, that number is very low. Uh, speaking of these, uh, I guess, quote unquote, breakthrough infections, one of the things that I am seeing now more and more with Delta uh, and is being used as an anti-vaccine talking point is this idea that the vaccinated because of Delta are now just as likely to transmit the virus as somebody who's not vaccinated. And that is not my impression of the literature either. But can you tell me a little bit about the truth of transmissibility with Delta if you're in Right. That was another, as far as I'm concerned, miscommunication by the CDC. I mean, and this was all, again, based on that Provincetown outbreak. And the, the mistake that they made was they looked at people who were vaccinated and asymptomatically infected as compared to those who weren't vaccinated and asymptomatically infected. But the mistake they made is they only looked at one early time point when you would expect actually there wouldn't be a difference. You would expect there to be a difference over time. You look at day two, three, four, five, six, seven. Later, you would expect that there would be much less shedding and for a shorter period of time in the vaccinated person. And that was what was found in the Singapore study that did it the right way. So again, we set the message out there wrongly that people, despite vaccination, are still going to be just as likely to shed. And I think, I imagine that was done because we're trying to scare people to be vaccinated, being vaccinated or to wear masks indoors. And I think all we're doing is confusing them, which I guess is going to ultimately bring us to the third booster dose for the general population under the category of confusing people. Right. Um, which brings me to my big question. Uh, I think a number of us were surprised earlier this month when the White House made an announcement that they were recommending a third booster dose, partially because uh, it didn't seem like we had data to support that. And also because it seems like we have an infrastructure in place for recommending how many doses should be given of a vaccine. And it doesn't start with the White House. (laughs) And so kind of just want to start with your general reaction to that announcement. I was obviously very disappointed by that. You, You have exactly, as you say, a process in place. I mean, to date, the mantra has always been it's the correct one. The goal of this vaccine is to prevent serious disease. And and the data that were presented by Kathleen Dooling at an ACIP meeting uh, exactly two weeks ago showed exactly that. England, Canada, Israel, the United States, Pfizer vaccine, Moderna vaccine, Delta variant, you still had a high level of protection against serious disease. Um, And so the, the, the thinking is that when that starts to erode, when there's some evidence that that's eroding, then you could argue for a booster dose. Um, and, and again, last week, there were two MMWR measles morbidity mortality weekly report publications show, you know, coming out of the CDC again, showing that a study in New York, uh, another multi-center study that protection against the severe disease caused by the Delta variant provided by these vaccines is still excellent. So where are the data on which this is based? Remember, there's two sort of two aspects of your immune response. There's neutralizing antibodies in the circulation. And then there's memory cells, memory B cells, memory T cells that once you're infected are activated to, you know, to become, say, antibody producing cells, which then can, can, you know, um, uh, stifle the infection. 
Um, and the memory as distinct from neutralizing antibodies, which are short-lived um, or shorter-lived, um, memory cells are long-lived. There was just a paper that came out in part of the University of Pennsylvania which, with John Reary and, and Laravel and others as, a, as authors showing just that. The protection that that neutralizing antibodies wane, but that memory not only seems to persist, but at some level can, can sort of increase over time. The other thing that that shows, so protection against serious disease is mediated by immunological memory, and memory tends to be longer lived. So why are we boosting eight months later? Why not just wait till there's some evidence of erosion in in protection against serious disease for for particular groups, for the elderly, for people who uh, have various comorbidities, and then recommend a booster for them. The other thing that this paper showed was that you don't can't really easily boost memory. <laughs> I mean that it, it's it, you, your memory generally is is very long lived. So so let's just wait. It just never made any sense to me. And you're right. The, the way this should work is number one, data are presented showing that there might be a problem. Number two, if there's an interest in say. Um, having a third dose of vaccine, then the FDA has to allow for that to happen. The FDA has to say, this is not a two-dose vaccine, it's a three-dose vaccine for the general population, because right now they haven't said that. They've said it's a three-dose vaccine for the immunocompromised, but not for the general population. So the FDA has not agreed that this is a three-dose vaccine. And then it goes to the ASAI, because the FDA just says the companies can distribute this as a three-dose vaccine. Then it goes to the CDC, which then recommends it or doesn't recommend it and may recommend it for a certain subgroup or not. And this was just completely bypassed. And the, the administration just stood up and made a declaration about how this was to be done. And it's incredibly confusing to people. Many people out there think now, now that they're no longer protected, which isn't true. They are protected against serious disease. And it's just... Um, not the way to do it. Now, in theory, I understood that the CDC was going to be discussing this next week on what was to be a two-day meeting on August 30th and 31st, but now that's a one-day meeting. And if you look at the agenda, I, I can't find clear evidence that, that there is a vote that's going to be on that. And it can't really happen until the FDA already approves this as a three-dose vaccine, which may be what's about to happen in mid-September. I'm on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, we've been asked to set aside a number of days, and, and who knows? Maybe that's what we're going to be talking about in September. I don't know that, um, but I, I suspect that that's probably next up um, on our agenda um, before we're going to be seeing those those data from children. Right, because the real risk here for the White House is that they've put this aspiration out into the world, and the FDA looks at it and says, mm, nope, this is still a two-dose series, and then we have a, you know, a few million people out there being like, well, but don't I need my third dose? You know, Joe Biden said so. <laughs> so, I mean, what what can we do to reassure people at this point? I mean, I don't know that you have the answer to that, um, but what can we do? Well, we have to wait, wait for more clear direction. I mean, when people ask me what to do, I say, let's wait till the CDC weighs in on this. And the CDC mm -hmm. will weigh in on this after the FDA has said this can be distributed as a three-dose vaccine for immune-competent people. Um, when that happens, then the CDC will take this up. And I think maybe that's the reason that the, um, the CDC is waiting. And, and, and if I had to make a guess, and I'd like to say that I'm pretty much always wrong when I make predictions about this virus, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. If I had to make a prediction at the way this plays out, I think that the FDA will, by mid-September, 
say that okay, it's 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 possible. Assuming the the, the they go to the advisory committee because we curious to see how that plays out. But the FDA may not go to the advisory committee. They might just say okay, we are going to say this can be distributed as a three dose product for immune competent people. Then it goes to the FDA sometime in September for a an ad hoc meeting where they'll then say okay, we agree with this or we don't agree with this um, for, as as a recommendation. So what I'm saying to people now is wait. Wait until we have a clear direction from the groups that we need clear direction from, which, as you note, is not the White House. Is there any other data we can refer to when we're looking at this third dose situation? Yeah, no, there, there was um, an interesting paper that um, is now available online. It's the title of this paper is mRNA vaccination induces durable immune memory to SARS-CoV-2 with continued evolution to variants of concern. The, 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 the first author, his last name is Goel, G-O-E-L. The first name is Rishi. So you should be able to find this uh, online fairly um, easily. The corresponding author is a guy named John Wery, W-H-E-R-R-Y, who's at the University of Pennsylvania. One of the co-authors actually was a woman who works in our division. Uh, Laura Vela. So, um, what the, the the point of this is that that what you would what you see is what you would expect. Which what they found is what you would expect, which is somewhat of a fading of uh, of uh, virus neutralizing antibodies in the circulation, but a persistence and actually a strengthening of um, immune memory. Looking at immune memory B cells, uh, T helper cells, cytotoxic T cells, and that there was actually an expansion of memory cells over time. And interestingly, it, the memory cells didn't seem to be easily boostable by another dose. So I, I hope, hope in a better world, these kind of papers have influence on decision-making. Um, I'm not sure we live in that world, but we'll see how this plays out. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for all of this amazing information today, Paul. It's always wonderful talking to you. Um, I think you are the most frequently asked back guest <laughs> to the estimable Fax Talk podcast. So thank you for joining us once again. Oh, I just would say one thing, though, in terms of like when people ask me to make predictions back in March, first week of March, I was on Christian Amon Poor's program on CNN International. And she said, you know, how bad is this going to be? And that was I March said, 2020. March. Yeah, sorry, March 2020. And um, you know, they were just starting to see the first or second death in this country. And I and the year before, 60,000 people had died from flu. And so I looked at China, where there were like 3,000 deaths in a country of five times our size. I looked in Italy, where there were a, a couple few thousand deaths in a country roughly five times smaller than ours. And I, I thought, you know, I mean, you know, Italy certainly does not have a better healthcare system than us. I don't see why we can't do as, at least as well as Italy. And I said, I can't imagine that there would be more than 60,000 deaths in this country. So I was off by about, you know, 600,000 deaths. Because if you're going to say something stupid, I think you should <laughs> tell your friend, you should say it on international <laughs> television so you continue to hear about it for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that I, I was witness, I was the witness, um, of a conversation between you and Kelly Moore that is going to result in you buying her a meal. So I, uh, <laughs> I think I actually should buy her lunch for the rest of her life, given how wrong I was on that bet. That's okay. I, I, think it, I will say that I think it's demonstrative of one of the most important things that we need to see. And we're not necessarily seeing among other people who are, who have expertise uh, that when new data comes in, you refine and you, uh, you you make changes and you give as accurate of a prediction or statements as you can. And we all appreciate that about you. We, we learn as we go. I, and I think mm -hmm. for some people, the uh, fluidity 
of the way science works is disconcerting. They think yeah. you yeah. know everything all the time, and that's never true. Ah, that is so true. That's a great place to leave it. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Okay. Thank you, guys. Take care. Stay safe. Yeah. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. And thank you to all of the listeners who are such a wonderful part of this podcast. I especially want to thank those of you who have told me that uh, the listening to this podcast has helped you through some tedious task. I cannot tell you how much that thrills me. So thank you for those comments. Uh, Call to action for this week. We are still all hands on deck, convincing everyone in our lives it's time to go get vaccinated. So, you know, follow what Voices for Vaccines is calling the four A's. Ask them what their concerns are. Affirm to them that it's okay to have concerns, acknowledge that they have made good health decisions in the past, and then answer them after getting their permission to give them an answer. Four A's. And you can have yourself a dandy old talk with someone who is a little worried about vaccination. With that in mind, my name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra. Uh, I'm a pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And you can find me mostly on Twitter. My handle is pedsgeekmd. And I'm also, if you want to find us at, uh, the, at Iowa Immunizes, our state immunization coalition, whether you're an Iowan or not, we'd love to see you there on Facebook. Uh, or Twitter, or uh, on our website, yeah. iwomunizes.org. To learn more, visit